0: Well, when I was in high school, I started writing terrible poetry. This is my first poem. Dad, I love you very much and know that you love me. I love the way you make me laugh. I wish you were a tree. And to be fair, I knew it was terrible, uh, but I wrote that and many other verses with that surprise last ending, I wish you were a tree, Sparky has to pee, Uh, don't drink that it's not tea, Um, because it made my grandmother laugh. And, and the, the summer that I got to spend with her before she got sick and moved into assisted living, uh, I would spend just hours thinking up these nonsense verses to read to her because she had this genuine, contagious laugh. And, and even at that young age, I think I had some idea, some sense that these would be some of the last times that I got to hear it. Poetry is an incredibly versatile communication. It can be about love. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day Thou art more lovely and more temperate? Looking at you, Jess. It could be... <laughs> It could be uh, scary. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortals ever dared to dream before. It can be nonsense. Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimbal in the wave. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the momia raths outgrabe. But poetry, among other things, is just uh, a way of communicating something. Poetry is a way of communicating something that, that couldn't be said as well if you just stated the facts. By saying something less realistic, you can actually communicate reality better than strict accuracy through poetry. Poetry played an incredibly important part in the lives of God's people. It was the book that Jesus himself quoted most often. Uh, Psalms and Song of Songs uh, are written entirely in poetic verse. The, the Psalms were meant to be sung in the public assembly, put to music. They were an avenue of public worship. And I, and I love the Psalms because in them, we see uh, a glimpse into not just the story but the heart of God's people. In in these poems, we see the the conflict and the longing and the joy and the pain that we know to be part of our our human experience still today. The Psalms are the songbook of Jesus. And they should be read, as C.S. Lewis writes, with all the licenses, the formalities, the hyperboles, the emotional rather than logical connections which are proper to lyric poetry. And because the Psalms are poems, they, they, can, they can be more relatable than some other parts of the scriptures, but they also have some peculiarities that we, that we have to recognize and be careful about uh, that, that can be dangerous if we read them the same way that we read something like the law or the prophets because poetry can't be too real. It can't be too like reality or it would mean less. For example, in Song of Songs, that scandalous love poem hidden in the med- middle of your Bible, there's a line that the, uh, the lover says to the beloved your navel is a rounded goblet. Now, as a woman, (laughs) if my husband were to say to me, your navel is a rounded goblet, and I took it literally, that would be super insulting. On the other hand, if he said, you know, your navel is the perfect proportion for a woman of average weight, that would be far less romantic. Poetry can't be too real. So we're continuing our discussion of justice through the scriptures this morning, this idea that God's justice is the same today that it was at the beginning of creation, that it will be at the end of all things. And this morning, we'll be looking at justice through the lens, through the perspective of the poets. And if you're tracking with us, as Jeff mentioned, you know that we're, we're using a, a, a verse in Luke 4 to anchor this text, and, and our discussion specifically today will be about that first aspect, to preach good news to the poor. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Psalm 82 or just listen as I read. And I brought the wrong translation, so I'm gonna read out of my notes. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing, they understand nothing. They walk about in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, you are all sons of the most high, but you will die like mere mortals, you will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for the nations are your inheritance. So right off the bat, we see some of this hyperbolic language. This is God Almighty rendering judgment on this group of people that he calls the gods, but of course, they're not actual gods. And there's some debate among scholars about this, but, but, but most scholars would agree that the gods that he's talking about are simply earthly judges, people who are able, uh, in a position of power, to, to render judgment on another person. One of the peculiarities of the psalms that I think, I think we see uh, today as we read them, is that, is that the poets, we see them calling out again and again for God's justice. They long for the day of judgment, they long for it. And I think if we're, gonna, if we're gonna take the psalm seriously, we have to understand why they're doing that. Because for, for us, for the modern reader, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Because we don't, we don't want justice, really, we want grace. Because we all know how guilty we are. We read something like Psalm 139, search me God and know my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me, any offensive way in me. Vindicate me, Psalm 7, vindicate me according to my integrity. And I think for me, sometimes I'm just like, Shh, stop saying that. Because we know our own hearts, right? The, the, the New Testament Christian doesn't call out for justice in the same way that the psalmist does because we, we know our own hearts. We know we have enough planks in our own eye to manufacture IKEA furniture. We look at justice from the perspective of the criminal court with ourselves as the defendants. But the, 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 the poor, at the time the Psalms were penned, looked at justice from the perspective of the civil court with themselves as the plaintiff. And this would have made total sense at the time because for, for these folks, uh, the, the local magistrates, the local judges at the time would have required a bribe. They would have required some form of payment to be made to even let their case into court. You had to pay someone even to have your case heard. And so the poor... Those most vulnerable to, 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 to being oppressed by their richer neighbors, landlords, and, 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 and landowners and lords would have had no recourse when their, their property, their animals, sometimes even their children were taken from them without compensation. They're calling out for justice because they know they have an airtight case, but no one will hear their case. C.S. Lewis writes Christians cry to God for mercy instead of justice. They cried to God for justice instead of injustice. And so, God, in this psalm, God is rendering judgment on the unjust judge, the one that would oppress the poor, the one who who holds him back from pursuing God's good purpose for his life. And I think for us, the modern reader, uh, if God is, is calling this case to be heard, I think for us it begs the question who should hear their case? And we see here in this psalm that God is holding those with influence and power responsible for not protecting the poor and vulnerable. And I would argue that we, as the Western church, are particularly culpable. And and, and, and not because I'm saying that we're the judges of the Old Testament. I'm not trying to be heretical. But but we are people with power and influence. And I have to admit, right off the bat, before we go any further, that that I... I know I have no business talking about this subject. I, I was sweating bullets preparing for this sermon because what right do I have to talk about poverty when I'm not poor? And my only experience with being poor is growing up with a single mom and, and she was a teacher and she waitressed in the summer and we bought our clothes from the Goodwill before that was like hip and, and we were on food stamps for a period of time. But, but, but even, it, it, it would be really easy for me to lean into that experience and to, to pretend like I have a little bit of street cred, but I don't because even though we bought clothes from Goodwill, I had more than two outfits to choose from. And even though we were on food stamps for a period of time, I had plenty to eat. In fact, you may recall me telling a story not too long ago about finding some old family photos that I was showing to my husband, and I had point, after I'd pointed out all of my uh, aunts and uncles and cousins, he points to the only person in the picture that I hadn't identified and said, who's the little fat boy? Yeah. <laughs> i didn 't think it was in, important for me to identify myself in the photo because I thought surely my sweet husband will recognize my face, but in fact he did not. I was wearing a skirt just in case you 're interested just still can 't let it go <clears throat> but the <laughs> the fact is I, did, I had plenty to eat and, and my grandparents live right down the street, so so she didn 't have to pay for childcare you know after school and stuff like that, and we had health insurance if we got sick and 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 we we certainly weren 't Wealthy by American standards, but we certainly were not poor by global standards. In fact, while I was preparing for this sermon, I was getting so overwhelmed at some points with the things that I was reading that I would take frequent breaks uh, and just kill some time online. And at one point, I actually ended up buying a jacket uh, off an online secondhand store called ThreadUp while writing my sermon on poverty. <laughs> so I, I mean, what's wrong with me? So I, I know that I have to plead God's mercy here, and I just want you to know that I know. I know you don't feel rich. I don't feel rich. But guys, we're rich. Anyone who can self-soothe with shopping is rich. (laughs) We're so rich that that after the service, we get to go eat somewhere. And we're we're so rich that not only do we get to go eat somewhere, we get to choose between Panera and Drunken Monkey because we have the luxury of knowing we're gluten sensitive. We're so rich that we wear deodorant. We're so rich that, that, that rich people give us credit cards because they think we can pay them back, and then other rich people want to make us even richer by awarding us points for using those credit cards that we can cash in for more stuff. We're so rich that if we drop food on the floor, we have the luxury of throwing it away. There's no good reason for that. If you drop a pretzel on your tiled floor, you pick that junk up, you eat it. It's not always true. If you drop pudding at a truck stop, leave it lie. <laughs> But in general, wastefulness doesn't cause us anxiety. We, we, we are so rich that we have health insurance for our pets. We have hair products. All of the people in our household have shoes, not just the wage earners. Uh, most of us have spent at least one night in a hotel and that one night cost about the same as someone in Malawi makes in four to six months. If you make $25,000 a year, you are in the richest 10% of income earners in the entire world. If you make $50,000 a year, you are in the richest 1% of income earners in the entire world. Forbes just released this data calculating that the richest 62 people in the world now control more wealth than the poorest 50% of the world's population. Not 62%, 62 individuals. 62 people have more money than just under 4 billion people combined. We have enough money that we can build doomsday bunkers stockpiled with food just in case of the zombie apocalypse. And there's nothing wrong with that if you're listening, John Parker. But it is a luxury to get to plan for something that may never happen. I'm not saying we're never gonna need a bunker. I'm, just, I'm saying it's not gonna be for zombies. We may well need it when, when we farm the, the earth dry, the deterioration of arable land that leads to, to, to food scarcity widespread. Or it could just be the tipping point When the desperately poor in the world so far outnumber those with stuff that they just come and take our stuff. These are preventable outcomes. If we'll just hear their case. We spend millions of dollars every year on pills and programs designed to reduce our caloric intake. When there's a kid in Indonesia with irreversible brain damage because he didn't get enough protein before the age of two. These aren't caricatures, these are people. And I, and I would argue that if we don't care about these people, we can't claim to, to care about a lot of the commands of Jesus to his followers, who we are trying desperately to be a good example of. And listen, I, I know the trouble with information like this. The trouble with information like this is that it's so massive, the problems are so massive, so overwhelming to the point of paralysis. We literally don't know where to begin, so we never begin. So, 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 so just hear me say, I am not trying to guilt trip us all into to selling all of our stuff and giving it to the poor. I'm not gonna discourage you from doing that if that's what God calls you and your family to, but but I don't think that's where everybody starts, right? I think we start by recognizing the fact that we are actually wealthy, and I I think we start by recognizing that our wealth comes not only with civic, but cosmic responsibility. I think we start by recognizing that through the blessing of our power and influence, we are the ones that God is is calling to hear the case of the poor. I mean... If not the church, then who? And, and we live in a culture that loves immediate gratification, right? So we tend to, to, to gravitate towards strategies that produce immediate results, but that's not actually hearing the case of the poor. That's, and sometimes it's not even actually that helpful. When Rob and I first started dating, uh, I'd moved in with some gals uh, in an apartment, and one of them lent me a bed, not bed frame, just, just the mattress. And so I wanted to get a bed frame to pull it up off the ground so I could store some stuff underneath of it. And Rob, being my hero, uh, wanted to help. And so he picks me up and takes me to Ikea, where couples go to fight. And I found this, um, this great, cheap bed frame uh, that had lots of space underneath. And so he asked me what size mattress I have. And I say, I, th- I think it's a full, it's definitely smaller than a queen, bigger than a twin. So we get the full size mattress frame, bring it back to the apartment. And Rob, you know, he gets out his toolbox, his manly toolbox. He opens it up. He unpacks the bed frame, takes out the instructions, looks at them. Then he closes his toolbox, pushes it to the side and takes this teeny tiny little plastic bag that's taped to the side of the bed frame, rips it open and takes out a hex wrench, roughly the size and shape of a hockey stick made for chipmunks. And then he spends the next three hours putting together this bed frame very slowly. And finally, when we're finished, he's so excited, we drop the slats in, lay the mattress down, frame's too small. And Rob is uh, one of the most patient individuals that I've ever met in my entire life. And so he does his very best impression of this not being a big deal. Um, And he dismantles the bed frame with the hex wrench, (laughs) wraps it in plastic, puts it back in the box. We go back to Ikea. We buy the queen bed frame, bring it back to the apartment. Same deal. He takes it out, puts it together for like three hours with a tiny metal toddler straw. And when he's finally done with that, we drop the slats in. We're really excited. We drop the mattress in. Frame's too big. There's gaps on both sides. So it turns out I have a special size mattress <laughs> that, they, that they like only use in college dorm rooms called a full extra long. Uh, I didn't know that existed. And, uh, and I don't have it anymore because Rob said if it meant never using the hex wrench again that he would just buy me a mattress that fit the frame. <laughs> so there you are. He worked really, really hard that day. And he spent a lot of time on me. He spent a lot of money on me. But the whole time that we were working, we were working on a problem that was misdiagnosed. The, the, the frame wasn't the problem. The mattress was the problem. It was a weird size. We can spend a lot of time and energy and money on a problem that's misdiagnosed. We can think that we're helping the poor and sometimes, sometimes we're not even not helping, we're actually causing further harm. I was watching this documentary uh, about poverty and they shared a story about a guy who was living in Rwanda and he um, started an egg business. And he sold everything that he could to build this enclosure and, and buy some pens, and he started his egg business, and it was doing really well. He was providing eggs for the entire community. And then in the wake of the, the Rwandan genocide, uh, this little church in Atlanta decided that they wanted to help Rwanda, and so they focused in on this village, and they, they, they wanted to do something for them. And so they decided that what they were going to do was to give them free eggs. And so they the whole summer, they, they, they flew in these eggs and distributed them in the village, and people had eggs. But... But no one bought eggs from the egg guy anymore because you know, it's hard to compete with free. And so over the course of that summer, the, the egg man had to sell his, his, his hens uh, and, and, and all the stuff that he had to provide other necessities for his family. But then at the end of that summer, that little church in Atlanta decided to focus their, their charity on another part of the world. But at that point, the Eggman was out of business, and and, and no one in that community had the capital to buy new hens, and so all the people in that community had to travel to to other villages to get eggs at twice the cost, plus the hardship of travel. Listen, there's there's nothing wrong with wanting to help. There's something very, very right about it, but how we help is incredibly important. I mean, if you saw a guy drowning in the middle of a pool and, and you were like, hey buddy, I'll help you and you threw him some dry clothes and a Chick-fil-A chicken biscuit, he's still gonna drown, right? How we help is sometimes just as important as if we help. Think about the difference that it could have made to that community if they just asked them what they needed before we sent them stuff. They might still have an Eggman. Eggman. We should help, we have the means to help, but we have to be smart about how we help and being smart entails asking people about their real needs. It's it's being in relationship with the people that we wanna serve. We have to let go of this idea that we know more simply because we have more. And I'm sure that you know, in a a sermon on poverty, you expected me to ask you to give your money and to be clear, I'm, I'm not asking you for less than that, but I'm asking you, more to to give your time, to give your human empathy, to get educated, to be in relationships that will allow you to hear the case of the vulnerable so that when you give your money, it will do good and not ill for those that we're trying to serve. Verse three, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the, the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. God Almighty is calling on the gods, these people with power and influence to, to, to hear the case of, of, of the poor, but not only that, but to respond wisely to it. We see this all over the, the Old Testament, the gleaning laws, don't go over your field a second time, leave something there for the poor. We see it uh, in the Sabbath laws and the Jubilee laws, let the land rest every seven years so that it becomes more productive. That's not even charity, like that's just, that's just good sense. We see in the Psalms poetry that is both violent and desperate and, and, and to be clear, again, because of the genre, we can't take it as a command, so we shouldn't be looking for Babylonian children to dash to pieces. The the violence and the desperation point us to something. Point us to something else. To to forsake our greed. And, and and that doesn't mean not making money. It just means making money in a way that's good for us and good for the people who work for us and the people around us. It's just good sense. I mean, you may not be a Christian. You don't even have to be a Christian to, 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 to recognize that this is good sense, to recognize that there's a natural consequence to greed. That there's a natural consequence to injustice. C. S. Lewis writes, It is monstrously simple-minded to read the cursings in the Psalms with no feeling except one of horror at the uncharity of the poets. They are indeed devilish. But we must also think of those who made them so. Their hatreds are the reaction to something. Such hatreds are the kind of thing that cruelty and injustice by a sort of natural law produce. Verse five, the gods know nothing, they understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Unjust judgment shakes the foundations of the order which sustains creation. There is a natural consequence to injustice because God designed his world to to have all the good pieces that he made working together interdependently. So when one piece goes bad, That badness gets into everything else. The badness affects everything else. Uh, Our coffee machine broke last week, and I know this because after several attempts, it would only produce some kind of undrinkable coffee sludge because there's, there's some little piece in there, some little piece that has gone bad and, and, and the, the badness of that one broken piece is holding all the other pieces hostage. It, it doesn't matter if, if all the other pieces are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. It doesn't matter if all the other pieces are working as hard as they've ever worked. That one bad piece is holding all the other pieces hostage from, from, from working according to their design. Justice, it, it, it's, it's, it's part of the fabric into which our world is woven and so when it goes bad, it ripples consequences across the entire tapestry. Injustice moves us toward the chaos of unordered creation. And I suspect that there's someone here who's getting, like, really mad at me because you are tired of being beaten up for something that you are not personally doing just because you have a little money. So, so, so please hear me say, I am not saying that it is all your fault that we got here. That some, of the, some of the richest individuals I know are also some of the most personally generous. You could be giving above and beyond the tide. You, be, you could be paying your employees better than any other comparable company. You could be supporting a bunch of kids from COTN. I'm not, I'm not blaming you personally. I'm just saying that, that injustice by its very nature, infects all of the other pillars of God's good creation. It works its way through the whole batch. It becomes systemic. I mean, why doesn't someone making 25K a year feel, feel rich? I mean, partially it's because they're ashamed of their secondhand shoes when their friends are wearing Nikes, and they're ashamed of the food stamps when other moms are paying with visas. And we've all contributed to that. And I'm not even saying that 25K is actually that rich. I mean, in America, it's still hard to eat on that. I'm just saying that 90% of the world is poorer than that. And we live in a culture that has all, all people, all of us, other cultures, our culture have contributed to that problem. We, we all have that darkness in the human heart that tempts us to, to measure our worth by our wealth. It becomes more than a personal flaw. It's a corporate flaw. And because it is a corporate flaw, no one individual, no matter how great or generous you are, can undo it alone. So I am not saying it's all your fault that we got here. I am saying it's all our faults if we stay here. Verse six. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. This psalm concludes rather harshly with a reminder that the gods, these people with power and influence, are still just breath and dust. And I think there's, a, there's an invitation here for us as the modern reader to recognize our own poverty. I, I think we can come into this conversation about something as big as poverty with some, with some assumptions. And I'm not saying they're all wrong. I'm just saying that we sh- we should begin this conversation with the understanding that that need, need is the only state of being that we share with every other human being in all of created history, save one. When I was young and still did fun things, my friend Heidi asked me to go downtown to see a band and, and as we were walking to the venue, we were approached by this kind of old bedraggled man and he told us that he was from Somalia and that he had lost his working papers and that he uh, needed some change to stay at the homeless shelter or else he'd have to sleep under the bridge that night. And he told us that God knew he was in need. And I could see Heidi kind of struggling with what to do and so finally she says, listen, I'm sorry, I can't give you cash, but, but if you wanna come with us, I'll, I'll buy you something to eat. And he kind of perks up and he's like, over at Subway Sandwiches? She's like, yeah, sure. So we walk over to Subway and on our way, I ask his name, where he's from, and, and, and he tells us his name is Mohammed, and he was traveling for, with the carnival from, from Jack, San Diego to Jacksonville, and, and on the way, uh, his bag had gotten stolen with his social security card and his working papers, and, and that the carnival had actually abandoned him at the last stop without pay. And we didn't quite get to how he'd gotten here from Somalia, because we'd all, already arrived at Subway, and Heidi said, get whatever you want. And so Mohammed ordered a 12-inch roast beef sub and a chocolate chip cookie. And as she swiped her card and began to fill out the receipt, I I noticed that the cashier is like glaring at him until finally he just can't help himself and he says, hey, I hope you know that that guy was in here eating 15 minutes earlier. Heidi kind of shrugs and she finishes her receipt. We walk outside and Mohammed thanks her. They shake hands. He says that God is gonna bless us and I am so angry. But I'm not angry at Mohammed at the cashier. Listen, I, I don't know whether or not you should give or not give, I don't know that there's a, a formula for that kind of spontaneous charity. I can't promise you that every time you say yes, you're not being scammed, and I can't promise you that every time you say no, you're, you're, you're not turning away someone legitimately in need. But what I do know is that Muhammad didn't know where his next meal was coming from, and it occurred to me as we were leaving that it didn't so much matter to me if, if he was choosing that path or if that path was thrust upon him because something isn't easy just because it's a choice. I don't know where we get this idea that, 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 that living on the charity or the naivete of others is something, somehow makes for an easy life. It doesn't. It actually, it destroys the opportunity for human connection because people don't look you in the eye anymore thing is not, it's not easy by virtue of being a choice maybe he was an addict maybe he was a liar maybe he marked these two young girls a mile away so what i can't judge mohammed because i am mohammed there are days when we are all mohammed there are days when i am so subject to my appetite such a slave to my desires that i become numb to the faithfulness of god there are days when, when I am so anxious that I can't wait on my manna from heaven and so I trick my neighbor out of his. And on those days, that cashier, even, even though I think he was trying to protect us with all his condescension, becomes my accuser too. Because we're all cheats and liars sometimes. We just find more acceptable ways of doing it so I can't begrudge him his 12-inch sub and his chocolate chip cookies. Heidi chose to love this man in the only way she knew best how, and, and, and it was beautiful, and, and I think perhaps there's something that gives me hope to know that humanity can still be scammed. Maybe we think that people are poor because they just don't work hard enough, and if they just read to their kids and raised them right, you know, they could turn this whole thing around. Well, maybe, but on a global scale, they may not know how to read, or maybe if they do know how to read, they could, but, but, but if they spend their time teaching instead of peddling scrap metal for, for money to buy food, no amount of teaching their kids is going to undo the, the, the side effects of the malnutrition. We're still looking at the problem from the perspective of people who have time for leisure. A lot of people don't. Not if they want to eat, and if we think that they just need to work harder, we don't know what it's like to try to grow tomatoes with no soil, seeds, or sun. I, I think that when we cling to this idea that, 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 that people just need to work harder, I really think, and, and mind you, this is an opinion that I've formed by recognizing the ugliness and selfishness in my own heart. I really think that when we cling to this idea that people just need to work harder, it's because I don't know how to deal with the seemingly arbitrary nature of my wealth compared to that kind of poverty. I don't know how to live with the knowledge that I have so much when someone else has so little without there being some good explanation for it, some reason, some, some merit on my part, some failure on theirs. Because without that, I don't know how to feel about my wealth other than guilty. But listen, God, God does not want you to feel guilty. I'm telling you, that's not what He wants. God doesn't want you to feel guilty. He, that's, that's not only not helpful, it's not even holy. Because if you feel guilty about your wealth, then you are still looking at yourself as an owner, not a steward. And that's not what we are. It's, it's, we're stewards, it's all God's stuff. God wants your stuff, He's going to take your stuff. I promise you that. You can't feel guilty about stuff that's not yours. He doesn't want you to feel guilty, He wants you to feel called. And I'm not saying that everyone here has to go out and become a, a, an expert on global poverty. Again, it's not just about each of our responsibilities. It's about all of our responsibility together as the church, as the body of Christ to move in the right direction. And, and there's some really great things already happening right here in this church. If you've been to any of the seminars in the evenings, we, you know that we are trying our best to partner with organizations that are, that are helping people without causing further harm. So I'm not telling you that you have to go out and start doing a bunch of new things, okay? Uh, if, if, if God calls you to something new, great. You should chase after that with everything you have. But, but if you don't feel that, just recognize that we are already participating in this as the body of Christ here at this church, but be all in. Be all in here because we can do a lot of good when we are doing that good together. I don't know why. I don't know why that God saw fit for us to have so much and someone else so little, but what I do know with absolute certainty is that it has nothing to do with what we deserve. If everyone got what they deserved, we would all be hungry and homeless and without hope. And I do know with absolute certainty that everywhere in the scriptures that God chooses to bless his people, it is always so that through those people through them, he can bring blessing to the entire world. Because in, in the grand narrative of history, as God is bringing his, his kingdom nearer to his creation, the story's not about me, it's not about you, it's about us. God's story with us. He didn't, he didn't just come to save individuals, he came to save his people. His people who as a community reflect the covenant blessings of living as his children. His people who, who by way of loving one another attract the nations to his grace. His people who all together reflect the image of God better than any one of them could alone. The story is about us. On our walk with Muhammad, I promise you that the best part of that interaction for him was not the sandwich. It was, it was the talking. It was just talking. Talking. To people who seem to want to know something about him, interested in, in knowing him as a human being. If you were here for the, for the um, poverty uh, injustice speaker panel, you'll remember that, that, that while rich people defined poverty in, t- in terms of material need, nine out of ten poor people defined it in terms of relational need, a lack of connection a lack of the meaningful networks of community that make progress possible. And of course it would. Because how many times are you at, at the corner of you know, whatever road and the guy with the cardboard sign comes walking down and, and suddenly there's something fascinating happening with the, you know, the radio on your Nissan Sentra. We don't want to look people in the eye. And, I, and I, don't think, I don't think it's because we're afraid of being asked for a couple of bucks. I think it's because we're afraid of being asked for connection, for empathy, connection is what makes progress possible connection gives hope and in our moment in history where we're choosing square feet over friendships and screens over faces we're afraid to look people in the eye because we're afraid of being asked to connect we're afraid of being asked to move into someone else's need it, it it's we don't always hoard our wealth Sometimes we hoard our human empathy because we we wanna reserve it for the people who we know will not ask more of us than we are able or willing to give. And when we do that, we can dangerously begin to see the poor not as people but as needs and move away from them, but thank God that when Jesus looks at you and he looks at me and sees only need, he moves toward it instead. Thank God we have a savior who when he looks on our poverty doesn't say, man, if they just read to their kids and raised them right, they could turn this whole thing around. Let's not fool ourselves. It is only charity, not merit by which any of us are saved. It can't be us and them because we're all them. We are all people who have nothing to offer to a God who has everything to give and gives it generously. Apart from the imputed riches of Christ, we are all miserably poor. And so good news to the poor, both for us and for the psalmist, is that our case has been heard and judgment rendered in our favor, not because of our goodness, but because of his so let's do our best to be good to one another. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you again for the opportunity to be here among friends and family, people that you've given us to love and to love us in return. Lord, we don't know why we have so much. We don't know why you've allowed us to have meaningful networks of, of relationships that give us life and allow us to give life to others, Lord, but we're grateful and I pray that you would help each and every one of us begin to, to see the people that you've put in our lives with new eyes, to hear your call with fresh ears, that, that, that we would begin to, as a, as a church, reflect and embody your justice, not just as individuals, but as your church together. Lord, give us the wisdom to respond to your call, whatever that might be, wherever it is leading us, and give us the humility to see where we are still so poor, where we need to lean into your riches and pursue it relentlessly, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of your entire church and for all our sakes. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.